The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Well, I'm thankful y'all are here, and uh, why don't we begin with prayer and then continue working through suffering today. Uh, we'll focus on the Lord and His suffering and um, some things that that means for us. Father, we are grateful to be known by you, that you have set your affections on us in and through Jesus, and as we consider the sufferings of this present world, we recognize that they pale by comparison to the glories that will be revealed to us, and yet they are real and painful, and we praise you that you are not distant from us, or cold or calloused or indifferent to us in them. You bring them to us by your sovereign and good hand for our good and for your glory, and although we may not understand all the particular details of these sufferings, we thank you that uh, Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, walking a truly human and yet sinless life, tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so it is to him that we cling this morning. We thank you for your love manifest to us in the gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, so a brief review uh, before we get into our topic for today, where we've been the last couple of weeks, um, we talked about uh, heaven and hell, eternal things, last time. And uh, we said uh, that hell is the requirement of a suffering that corresponds to the value of the glory that we have despised by our sinning. And so hell demonstrates both God's justice towards unrepentant sinners and his mercy towards those in Christ, whom he spares that, that punishment and pours out his gracious rewards on. So um, we, we cast heaven and hell in terms of their, uh, their rightness due to the eternal nature of God and his glory. Because God's glory is eternal, despising that glory merits an eternal suffering. And so we talked about that with uh, our focus on hell last week. And then on the other side, the promise of heaven is a reminder that our present sufferings are incomparable to the eternal glory coming in and with Jesus. And so we said that among all the things that we might focus on in our sufferings, having a perspective on eternal things will um, help guard against the despair and hopelessness and frustration and anger and resentment that can sometimes set in when we're walking through trials of various kinds. And uh, we kind of had to speed up very much at the end, but uh, we, we said briefly that uh, God gives his people regular means of grace for living in a world marked by suffering as we await our future with Christ. So we talked about God's goodness to us in his word, in prayer, in the church, that he supplies us with what we need to walk through these things, not alone, but with the people of God and with the comfort of God. <clears throat> But today, we're going to press in a little bit more on that as we focus on God's empathy in our suffering. That God is not detached from it, but He is a very present help in time of trouble. And that's important, uh, looking to your packet, because there is a danger in our suffering that we become overly self-focused. Probably one of the easiest things to do in life uh, is to be inwardly self-focused and Trials have a way of appealing to our fleshly tendency to do that even more. And if we do that, we may find ourselves looking for worldly wisdom and worldly comfort rather than that which the Lord would provide. Um, 
How do we, how do we see evidence of that? Like if you were you know, wanting to ask questions of yourself or maybe helping a brother or sister. Um, one, one warning sign, and I think you can kind of think about this in terms of even where we ended last week with, with the means of grace that God supplies, is where we see evidence of those graces being neglected is a real warning. Uh, so if you see someone in their trials or difficulties withdrawing from the people of God, there is a danger that the, the suffering is causing self-focus and not focus on the Lord. We said that the Lord means for our sufferings to direct our gaze to Christ. But if we are, if we are not doing that, if we are neglecting that, then that may be manifest in someone withdrawing from the people of God, which is a, which is a big red flag. This one, uh, you know, with my coffee still to go is sort of convicting. Being generally unhappy and unpleasant. Do you know people or do you find yourself just sometimes being just generally an unpleasant person to be around? Um, I've got about three or four more inches of coffee to go before I'm probably a generally pleasant person. Yeah, let me finish that and then we can get on with it. But we can, we can test ourselves and help others in just the, their general demeanor. You can find that uh, suffering may drive people down one of two roads, where there is a joy and a contentment in the Lord, um, not necessarily even despite the circumstances, but that God is establishing through the circumstances. Or you may see a person who is just growing more and more bitter uh, and cold and resentful towards God, towards other people. And so, withdrawing from people, just a general demeanor of unhappiness or unpleasantness, or, uh, and I think I certainly can resonate with this, I'm not sure if you, if you put yourself into one of these categories, if, if you find yourself struggling, but this one hit me, um, just looking for ways to forget about our troubles through various distractions, uh, th- maybe things that aren't necessarily inherently bad, just, you know, filling your mind and your time with things to... Uh, that will get your mind off of that, you know, this thing right here is an easy way to detach yourself from reality, Um, or um, addictions, sinful uh, habits, things that we might get into. So those are just some ways where we could test ourselves to see if in my suffering I am responding in a self-focused way, it may be in isolation, it may be in sinful addiction, it may be in distraction. Um, there could be other things that we could add to that list, certainly. Um, but we want to guard against the self-focus that can naturally set in in suffering. And we're going to talk about how directing our, our thoughts and our gaze to Jesus is an antidote for that. Um, because suffering is a fight for faith. Suffering is a fight for faith in God, who is faithful, who is loving, who is sovereign, and who is good, even when we lack the understanding of why we are going through things. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 4, 7, describing this fight for faith, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It's easy, I think, in the Christian life to at least it is for me, to, uh, when I'm driving down the highway, I love cruise control. 
Y'all like cruise control? That's like my favorite feature on the car. You get on like a straight stretch of interstate and you put it on a responsible speed. I saw Drew back there and I was like, 65. Um, and you just hit the cruise control. And of course, and in these newer cars, I'm not even sure you have to keep your hands on the wheel anymore. It's like it'll keep you between the lanes. But, you know, on, on our vehicles, you know, all I got to do is keep, keep it between the lines and the car is doing the rest for me. Well, we can, we can try to do that, I think, in the Christian life, is just to kind of hit cruise control and, and not view the Christian life as a, as a fight, as a marathon race, as a battle, and more of a, I'm just kind of coasting. I see, I see the end in sight, and I'm just kind of keeping this thing between the lines until we get there. Um, suffering has a way, I think, of shaking us out of that mindset and realizing that there are potholes and obstacles in the road and you can set cruise control in a more or less obstacle-free traffic pattern, right? Straight road, not a lot of traffic, not a lot of stopping and going, not a lot of obstacles to navigate, but driving around Tuscaloosa, for example, while the college students are still here, probably not going to be using cruise control on McFarland Boulevard, right? You got all sorts of dangers and obstacles to avoid. Well, if we're going to use traffic as a metaphor for the Christian life, it's more like navigating Tuscaloosa on 82 at 5 o'clock than it is, you know, driving between here and Birmingham on a Sunday afternoon at, you know, 70 miles an hour with no traffic. Suffering shakes us up to remind us of the battle that we're in, and that is good. Uh, so it's a battle for our thoughts to be redirected in a spiritual and biblical direction rather than a worldly one. And God gives us grace in Jesus to see that he is the one who truly brings us comfort. And we're going to focus today on the fact that Jesus personally understands suffering uh, and in a number of ways then is a great comfort to us. God's character is also comforting to us in our suffering. In, uh, in Psalm 119 verse 50, the psalmist says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So there, the psalmist is reflecting on not only the word of God and the commandments of God and their, and their goodness, but also on his own suffering. And it's the faithfulness of God there recorded for us in verse 50 that the psalmist brings to the forefront as a great source of comfort in suffering. Um, I've mentioned several times the little book by Ligon Duncan, and uh, I thought this was a, was a helpful quote in thinking about God's character in suffering and how he means for our attention to be perhaps redirected in suffering. Many times in the Christian life, God answers our cries, Why, O Lord? Not by explaining his providence, but by giving us a deeper understanding of his person. In other words, when we cry, Lord, why are you doing this? He often answers by saying, Let me show you who I am. And if you see him, he will be enough. Reading that out loud to you right now, and maybe you hearing it, I think at least I'm inclined to go, yeah, that's true. The difficulty is having our minds on that sort of idea when we are in the thick of it, when the suffering meets us. And so one of the things that I, that I hope is useful in this block is 
um, thinking about suffering ahead of time, actually preparing our hearts and minds for the things that God brings our way, uh, so that you know, if we're talking about fighting the good fight, fighting the good fight of faith, and finishing the race, then it's implicit that there is training involved. We need to be training our minds for godliness, and that will not come outside of trials in the providence of the Lord, it seems. It seems that he intends to bring it through them. And one of the things that he does graciously in bringing trials to us is showing us more of himself and his faithfulness and his goodness and his love and his compassion. And so we may not have all of the answers we want. You know, I, you, we, we talked about Job, you know, out of the gate. If you, if you read through the end of Job, Job doesn't just get a Q&A session with the Lord. And so, like, why did that happen, God? And the God's like, well, let me tell you exactly all those things. This is, he doesn't peel back the curtain and just show him everything. He, he re- actually ends up rebuking Job with his character. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so Job, what he actually grows to understand by the end of the book is not all of the reasons why things happened. He gets to know the Lord better. And in that sense, he's, he's humbled by it, and that, that's a good thing. A similar thing uh, happens to Jonah. Jonah knows the Lord to be full of steadfast love and mercy. He ends up being resentful of it, unfortunately, when he shows that steadfast love and mercy to the Ninevites. But what we see God doing is not just saying, here's the answer key to all of the things that I'm doing in your life, but... I'm going to show you who I am, and I mean for you to be satisfied in me. And so it's good for us, I think, to store these things up before we are facing these things directly so that we have a well to draw on of relying on and treasuring. Yeah. Well, in terms of, um, you know, the evangelistic bent, the next section that we're going to move into is one of the things that should be a comfort to people and certainly to the people of God is Jesus suffered. And so the gospel includes God who takes on flesh and suffers and dies. And the the sympathy of Christ, having a sympathetic great high priest, one who was made like his brothers in every respect, who was tempted in every way are yet and tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, there is I think um, also in that you can find I think something helpful in sharing the gospel with people who are suffering is the man of sorrows knows suffering. He is not detached from pain and grief and abandonment and torture and death. Um, I think, you know, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is, you, you see his, his compassion there in understanding what toll sin has taken in the lives of people. Um, and so, well, I want to be careful in talking about, you know, Jesus as a model in suffering and Jesus as an encouragement in suffering to not give us, you know, any confusion about what is central to the gospel. 
What is central to the gospel is the atonement of Christ. So Christ as victor or Christ as model, those are all true things and good things about the work of Christ. But his substitutionary death to make atonement, to make propitiation for sins is central to the gospel. So we want to we cling to that, but then not also neglect the other facets of his work. And one of them is his sympathy to us, his real sympathy to us. Um, so we'll move on to that in just a second. Yes. If, if our problem is something other than sin, like suffering, for example, if suffering is the main problem, then we will make the heart of the gospel something else. He's, you know, he's a deliverer. He's a, he's a rescuer from your, you know, sickness or trials or whatever. Um, sin is the main um, so, from the standpoint of sympathy, one of the things I think that means is that he has, he has stood there and walked in them, right? He, he has borne sufferings and sorrows as a true man. So, I think there is, there is something in his incarnational living as a true man that's there. In terms of, like, the, the death of Christ, primarily for the people of God, we're seeing atonement being made. Sin's debt, payment for sin, is being made. But what we're also seeing is the curse being undone. And so the fall in Genesis 3, you see man and woman and the world cursed by sin. And so now tornadoes rip through Tennessee and, and kill people. Coworkers, spouses get in car accidents and, and people die. People get cancer. People lose their jobs. People's financial situations are topsy-turvy through no apparent fault of their own, like what you said. That it's not like, I mean, it, it's the question of the disciples. Okay, so who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we can talk about Jesus' answer to that. Neither this man nor his man sinned that he was born blind, but that the what the works of God or the glory of God might be displayed in him. Well, how is it that Jesus can guarantee that? Like, how is it that Jesus can actually say that and that be, that be actually what is going on? He's sovereign over it. He knows that he's going to accomplish it. And in his death, I think what we're also seeing is the curse in an already sense starting to be undone. So where we see... Um, like, look at the early church, for example. Look at Acts and see what happens as the gospel is proclaimed and the accompanying signs. What do you see? Well, you see healing and you see miraculous provision and you see all sorts of things in the world that kind of the, the, the layer of fallenness being peeled back somewhat to see the kingdom coming. And we're also in that not yet tension of still living out those scenarios like you mentioned. So I think his death and resurrection have secured that kind of free from sin and fallenness and grief life that is coming in his return. So that is, that's one of the ways I think I would answer your question, is that his death and resurrection secures that eternal future and is necessary for it, for the world to be made new. Is him bearing that on himself.
He takes the fall for the fall. Mm. Um, I, think, I think you've been looking ahead in my notes for next week, Timothy. Um, next week, we're going to focus on unbiblical responses to suffering. And one of the reasons that's important, I think, is what you bring up, is um, we, are, we are living our lives out before people. They are a testimony to the gospel in one way or another. And um, we're going to focus, I think it was two times ago, we talked about God's revealed purposes for suffering, the good things that he means to bring about through them. Next week, we're going to focus on some of the traps that we might fall into in suffering and in helping orient our thinking about that so that our suffering is not marked by sin and selfishness, we need to direct our, our thoughts uh, to Jesus. And Yeah, and that kind of connects to Charlie's point about, you know, I wish I could just hurry up and learn this lesson God is trying to teach me. Well, it's not head knowledge that we're lacking, right? It's, we're, we're being made fit. We're being trained. Um, and that, that's not like just some notes you copy down off the chalkboard. He's actually bringing you to himself by means of the purifying fire of trials. Um, and one of the comforts he gives to that to us, perhaps we should say a primary comfort he brings us uh, in that, is seeing the life of Jesus himself. So back to your packet. God's mercy and comfort to us as sinners could never come without Christ's suffering on the, cro- the cross because we deserve punishment for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So like we said a few minutes ago, the the problem that we're talking about in life that the gospel meets is the problem of our sin and how we deserve God's justice and judgment and wrath on account of our sin. That's the focus of Michael's sermon today out of Romans 3. That is central to the gospel. So we can't lose sight of Christ's atoning work and God making him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's the great exchange of the gospel. Christ's sinlessness merited him all the rewards of heaven. Our sin merits us all the curses of God and wrath and hell. But by God's grace through faith in Jesus, there is this great exchange that takes place. Our sin is placed on Christ and his righteousness is placed on us. Um, So his suffering is not merely an example. It's first and foremost a substitute. But it is also an example to us, and it is and should be a comfort to us to see his sympathy for us. So we can talk about some of the tangential elements to the gospel as long as we make sure we understand what is central to the gospel is Jesus' death for our sins in our place. It's really only in that that we can be comforted in any way by him because uh, the only way that you can have hope in your trials or battle sin, is if you're working from a place where God has forgiven them. Uh, I heard it said not too long ago that the only sin, oh, how was it phrased? 
I'm having trouble with my words too this morning, Charlie. The only sin that you can fight is a sin that God has forgiven or, or, or something like that. Um, if, we, if there is no confidence that our sins have not actually been paid for and atoned for, then we have no strength with which to battle them and no hope with which to face the trials that we've got. We're, we're working from a place of victory that Christ has achieved. And so the atonement is central to that victory. From that, then we find comfort and receive help in our time of need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that over the next three or four weeks, that's really going to be the focus of our preaching passages. Uh, the series is called "From the Manger to the Cross," and we're we're basically taking different elements of what Jesus accomplished when he died. Um, this first one, it's, it's right and good for us to focus on propitiation. He is bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And yet there are so many other wonderful things that Jesus has done for us in and through his death and resurrection. He has secured our justification. He has secured our own resurrection. He has um, secured the new heavens and new earth, to your point, about our, our griefs and sorrows now and what that means for the future. Um, he is also a sympathizer. Jesus can empathize with us in our suffering because he took on human nature in order to make propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see even other elements of Christ's death in Hebrews 2. You see defeating the devil is accomplished by Christ's death, not despite it, which shouldn't surprise you because when you think about the temptations of Christ, what is it that Satan is trying to get him to do? hey, I'll give you all the authority and all the power and all the kingdoms and everything, but don't go down the road that leads to Calvary. Worship me instead. He wants Jesus redirected from a life of righteousness that culminates in his death and resurrection because Satan's own defeat is wrapped up in that. Again, that's not central to propitiation, but that is another wonderful thing that has been accomplished by the death of Christ. But I bring up Hebrews 2 not because of that, but because of Jesus taking on human nature and making propitiation. Um, he became a man in order to suffer and die for his people. Uh, I like to say it this way. Sin is a God-sized problem and a man-shaped problem. And so we need the God-man to deal with sin. It is a problem that only God can solve but a problem brought about by man. And so Christ, the God-man, makes propitiation, and he is the only one suitable to do so. So the sympathy of Jesus. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked about propitiation. Let's talk about the sympathy of Jesus. Jesus can empathize with us in our suffering because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. You're familiar with the passages from Hebrews 2 and 4, I think. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
And then in 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think it's not wrong when we see people suffering to, not only is it not wrong, it is good and loving and kind to have the, like what Timothy expressed, um, a desire to want to be used by the Lord to bring comfort and encouragement and help to someone who is going through an intense time of grief. That is a good thing. In the midst of that, one of the things that we ought to do is be thinking about and praying about how not only our presence can be a comfort to that person, but how we can be used to direct that person to the Lord. In, in being, you know, as it were, the hands and feet of God, I think sometimes we can go astray in thinking that, well, so we're just going to do all the work and do all the comfort and do all the things because we're the Lord's hands and feet. Well, what we want to do is turn that person to see who the head of the body is. Does that make sense? I, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is not that don't be a comforter. In your comfort of someone, or in your thinking about your own suffering, direct people to Jesus who was tempted as we are and yet who is without sin, who has suffered as a man, who understands griefs and sorrows and pain and, and all the things that we go through as people. Ultimately, we want to see people directed to the hope that we have in Christ. We can comfort people, but we can't save people. And that, again, gets back to what our big problem is. If the big problem is that we just need comfort in our afflictions, that's going to change the way that we approach helping people and thinking about suffering. But if the problem with your coworker, whose wife was killed in a car accident, remains to be his sin, then your comfort of him has a termination point, right? There's a lot of things that you can be used by God to do for him, and that might include sharing the gospel with him, but ultimately the real eternal help for him is going to be coming from someone else. It's going to be coming from the Lord. And so we need to remember shifting our own gaze and putting the arm around the brother or sister or maybe the person who's not a brother or sister yet and directing them to Christ. We want to see people turned not just to the comfort that God brings through us, but to the only source of true, eternal, lasting comfort in the gospel. Um, so the Bible insists on Jesus' true humanity and his perfect sinlessness. And that's important because Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So for Jesus to satisfy God's righteous requirements, he must be perfectly sinless. But I think this is really a remarkable thing about the gospel. Jesus satisfies God's righteousness in a way that he becomes a merciful and sympathetic helper to the people of God. In living that life of righteousness, he does so in a way that he is now able to help us. I, Hebrews 2.18 blows me away. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I was talking about this with my kids, I don't know, it's feel like it's been a couple months ago, and one of them asked me why Jesus had to die the way he did. 
like the, the question really was, why couldn't Jesus have like grown old and died in his sleep? And that created a conversation about the horrors of sin and the justice and wrath of God towards sin that Jesus doesn't just live the Hallmark card life and grow old and die peacefully in his sleep. He actively bears the wrath of God on our behalf. And so in doing that, he becomes one who is sympathetic and a help to us, which I think is just a remarkable thing about the grace of God to us and our own suffering. Um, it seems that according to, to Hebrews 4, his sympathy and his help to us reflects his desire to push us further into persevering faith in God. It says, therefore, let us hold fast our confession. And so our sufferings and the comfort of God to us in Jesus are meant for us to be clinging more tightly to the gospel and not relinquishing it, not abandoning it, not neglecting it, not neglecting the people of God. Um, there's a number of the Psalms. I, did I put the Psalms back on your packet? Maybe not. Do I have those on your packet? I think I had forgotten to do that last week. Well, the Psalms, which are ultimately pointing us to Jesus, illustrate Christ's sufferings, and in so doing can bring comfort in our affliction and encourage us to use the words and worldview of Scripture to navigate our suffering. So if those are on your packet, um, you know, those, those are, uh, I think, can be a very helpful um, list of, of psalms to read, psalms that reflect suffering and lamentation. And ultimately, the, the voice of the psalmist is not first and foremost our voice. We are, we are seeing the psalms rightfully understood as the songbook of Jesus, the true king of Israel. And through him, then, we can relate to God and have an understanding of who we are in light of him. So the psalms are ultimately not directing us to ourselves and our suffering. The psalms would have us first look to Christ and his, and then to interpret our lives in light of who we are in him. Yeah, that, that's why it's, uh, it's heartbreaking and unhelpful for Christians to live the, well, I'm fine mindset. She said that one of the things the Psalms do is just acknowledge and recognize the reality of suffering. The Bible doesn't just whitewash suffering and say, oh, that's not a, that's not a big deal. And there's a lot of theological things that are tied into this, and I feel like we talked about this a week or two ago. It's another reason why we're not Gnostics. The physical world that we live in was originally good and will be remade. And so our experience of cancer and sore hips and bad backs and sinus infections and tick bites, those cause us to lament because that is real suffering. That is not what God declared to be very good. The world is under the curse. And Jesus is delivering us from that. Like Charlie said, his, his death and resurrection has accomplished two very important, well, among lots of important things, I think what Charlie was talking about was the penalty of sin is broken. That's what we're talking about in propitiation and atonement. The penalty for sin is removed from believers. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What Charlie pointed out is that 
the power of sin over God's people is broken. And so you have in Christ, by the Spirit, one who is supplying you the power to walk in ways that please the Lord and not to sin. You have the ability, even in every temptation, a way out that is not sin. That doesn't mean that we live or are going to live sinlessly, but sin's power is broken. Those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. We are free from the power of sin, even as we look forward to being delivered from the presence of sin altogether. Where that meets us now in the Psalms is suffering is still a very real and present thing in our lives. And the I'm fine mentality is, is heartbreaking because it, it just it, it minimizes what we or other people are going through. And I think there's kind of a false humility present in, well, I can have that attitude towards my suffering but I won't have that attitude towards other people's suffering. Inevitably, if that's your attitude towards your own suffering, I'm fine, then what you're going to want to do is have everybody else be fine too. You see that? If you minimize your own suffering, then the expectation is, whether you mean for it to or not, you will expect other people to minimize theirs too. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? What's the answer you're expecting? I'm fine. That doesn't mean on Sunday morning at 10.20, when somebody says how you're doing, you say, let's go in the next room and we're going to talk for the next hour and a half about all my sufferings. But it might be, there are some, especially if this is someone you know well, someone you have a relationship with, it might be more like, there's some really difficult things going on right now. And I imagine that may be the case for you too. You want to grab a cup of coffee this week and we can chat about and pray about these things together? You can give a quick, honest answer that's not, I'm fine, that actually makes room for relationships to grow, that acknowledges the reality and uh, pain of suffering. Yeah. Absolutely, because think about what we're communicating about the gospel if our response to everybody is, I'm fine. If God comes to you saying, you are a sinner, you are standing under my wrath, Jesus, my son, has stood in your place. He has borne your sins on the cross. He has been raised from the dead. There is life only in him. And you say, I'm fine. What does it say about the gospel? Like, I'm fine Christianity is so commonplace, but it's so lacking in grace. And it's so bankrupt of the gospel. Um, there's a lot that we could talk about there. And it's not, again, you don't just have to wear your heart on your sleeve with everybody you come in contact with. There are a lot of things that we could say, and I would say, think about applying wisdom and discretion to those kinds of conversations. But the sympathy of Jesus makes us the kind of people where we are actually able to, within the body of Christ, be real with others about our suffering and our struggles and actually then receive comfort because it's in essentially going to God and saying, I am not fine. I am a sinner. My only hope is Christ. That you actually receive comfort from him in the gospel. And in the example of Catherine, who I was thinking of as we were having this conversation, was there's actually comfort to be had from her loved ones in the wall of it's fine coming down. Um, 
Absolutely. That, again, apply wisdom and discretion to those things, but there ought to be people you know that there is a level of trust and a relationship there where, and again, Sunday morning at 1025 may not be the place to have that conversation with anybody. But there needs to be that sort of nurturing of relationship with people that we can share our... All the one another commandments in the New Testament are really hard to fulfill if you don't know people. Um, I don't know how you're going to bear one another's burdens if you don't know what they are to bear. Um, So there needs to be people that we're that we're sharing those things with. Um, but I don't know if it's a Southern thing or like a, just a Western Christian individualistic thing or all of the above where it's really easy just to put up that wall of I'm fine. Uh, we want to be seen. I want to be seen as kind of having it all together. And so when, I, when that wall starts to come down, oh, you start seeing, oh, he's, he's imperfect. He can be short-tempered. Some, his, his kids are not just the little angelic kids that you might think they were. I don't think y'all are under that impression, but the more that comes down, you, the more warts you see, and we don't like people seeing that. If, if we could find a way to be comforted without people seeing who we really are, we might... The I'm fine protects us from people seeing us in ways that we don't want to be seen. Social media has made that even easier for us to kind of put out there what we want to portray. We've established a world in which I can keep you at arm's length. I can have conversations with you on here instead of in person. I can present who I want you to see online. I can keep you out here, and that keeps you from seeing me. And those can be very, very destructive in the Christian life. All right, real quick. Jesus' suffering is also an example for his people to follow. Some, from 1 Peter, one of y'all had, I think, referenced this. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Again, we're not saying that the sufferings of Christ are primarily an example, but they are an example. He leaves an example that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter's reading our mail because... He, he emphasizes there at the end of that little section what is central to the gospel, Jesus bearing our sins. But look what he says about leaving an example so that we might follow in his steps. What, is, what does it say about Jesus' response to suffering? That's part of it, Absolutely. Okay, so the implication then is you, Christian, are meant to be continuing to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. He committed no sin. Not that we're not going to sin or haven't sinned, but does God mean for you to sin in your trials? That's an easy one. No, he doesn't mean for you to sin. Jesus leaves us an example 
of one who suffered without sinning. He means for us to suffer and not walk in sin in the midst of it. Deceit wasn't found in his mouth. He doesn't mean for us to be deceivers. One of the ways that we deceive one another is by saying, I'm fine. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Oh man, I don't like that one. I don't like it when I'm in traffic. I don't like it when my kids talk back to me. He did not revile in return. He didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, we look to Jesus as Savior and Rescuer, and we also look to Him as example. This is how Jesus lived as a sufferer. And in bearing His image, this is how He means for us to live as we suffer. And not only how He means for us to live, but how He empowers us to live by the Spirit, and what He is producing in us for the future as we suffer. Again, it's a training mindset. Um... Okay, so the gospel in practice, real quick as we close. I know we've got to finish. When we're tempted to respond sinfully, what we need in our temptation is justice and mercy. We need justice for whatever evil we're suffering. We need mercy to help us through it. And it's a good reminder that in the gospel, Jesus has supplied both, justice and mercy. We talked about that, I think, a little bit last week, too. We need to remember that not only was Jesus tempted in every way, like we are, but that also other people are experiencing the same kinds of trials. Again, trials make us naturally inwardly focused, but we're reminded in uh, 1 Corinthians and in 1 Peter of some encouraging things. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Ever felt like you're the only one going through the thing? Well, you're not. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then even more good news. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God gives us antidotes to that natural inward focus of suffering, and that is directing our gaze to the mercies and character of Christ and opening our eyes to our brothers and sisters around us. As we share these things with one another, we realize that we're not alone. God has not left us alone in his relationship with us and with members of his body. He is faithful to provide the strength for us to endure. Jesus models fighting for faith by clinging to Scripture. You know, when we think about his temptation in the wilderness, it's the, the right interpretation and use of Scripture that he battles with. That's a good example for us. And then lastly, the gospel is an unshakable reminder that God is for us. With no other thoughts or interpretation, I will just read Romans 8, 31 to 38 for us and then we'll be closed. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.